We good, corpse? Yep. All right. 58? 58. All right. Three, two, one. Ladies and gentlemen, this is going to be a fun episode. Another sort of true hoops journey. Um, and a gentleman who's, you know, worked himself through the coaching ranks. Excited to know a little bit more about what he was like as a young guy and how basketball came into his life. Um, but if you are a coach in Canada these days, I would hope you would know a little bit about uh, the b-ball immersion and uh, Mr. Chris Oliver. He's done a phenomenal job just spreading the game. So many great resources. Um, I know I'm a follower. I know our coaching staff follows everything he does. And we're super excited to kind of just get to know about this unique story. And I think there's a lot of coaching stuff behind the scenes that a lot of people wouldn't know about him. And he's too modest to kind of share it in his social media platforms. But this is why we got him on to know all that stuff and then hear how he got into uh, the world he's in now. But let's check in with you. How are you, sir? And thanks for being with us. Well, thanks for having me on. It's an honor and uh, love what you're doing. Cool. You know, we're just talking here. You're down in the Palm Desert. Once Corbs edits this uh, episode, we'll get the violins playing for you. But how has life been for you and your family? You know, coming off a, a birthday weekend, we just had Ace Koenig and she recorded on her birthday and you're just coming off your birthday. You don't need to tell us what birthday it was, but uh, how was it and how's life for you and your family? Well, you know, everyone's had challenges during this, this past year and uh, we are very grateful to be doing okay and uh, definitely, uh, you know, it's just gratitude to the universe, I guess, for that. And uh, we live in a wonderful place in the world where we can be outside a lot and uh, just have some great experiences and uh, had the pleasure of homeschooling my daughters throughout this year. So we didn't disrupt them and we gave them another year of their innocence, so to speak. And uh, it was just tremendous. And uh, the birthday just capped it off. That's awesome. What did they think of dad as a teacher? Were there some were there some moments where we had to take a longer uh, recess or lunch break? You know what? I mean, and we can get into this if you want. We're very much free range parents yeah. and um, we're very much uh, the parents that if they come to us and say something like, hey, what do I do? We're the ones that say figure it out, which really kind of aligns with my coaching in a lot of ways as well, which is the game's approach and the concept of players being empowered to figure it out a little bit more. So applying it to our kids has actually been easier than applying it in coaching, I think. And, uh, you know, they bought in and uh, they've been wonderful to be able to be around. That's cool. And I think, you know, being a high school teacher myself, that's the way education's going too, right? We're getting away from sort of making kids regurgitate content and having them figure out their learning along the way and being responsible for their learning. So you're steps ahead of the game, but no surprise. Well, isn't that long overdue? Like we're yeah. just we're education reform. I mean, I've done my best to kind of add some, I guess, some stimulation for basketball coaches to think about some educational things or different things. And just asking, is there a better way? Not saying my way is the best, but is there a better way? And I think we all conclude that for education that there is. And, uh, you know, I don't know if my daughters could go into a classroom today and then get perfect on every test, mm. but I know they can learn anything. And to me, that's the main thing is that they have a real understanding of learning and what it means and the effort involved in it. And, uh, you know, if we could empower all of our kids to know that, you know, they'll be better off in life. Sheesh. Couldn't have said it better myself. I mean, that you're you're right on target. And what's the end goal for high school is that right is figure out what it is you want to do and pursue and have the school that the, the tools and skills underneath that will 
let you expand and, and, and figure all that out. So that's awesome stuff, man. Right on. Let's jump into it. Tell us about who Chris Oliver is, what his life was like as a young, uh, a young guy, where he grew up and kind of how basketball sort of started to draw towards you and you started to uh, appreciate the game itself that we all love. Yeah, I was late to basketball, you know, not until really the seventh and eighth grade was I really exposed to it. And it was really just going into the summer of seventh grade where I went to a basketball camp for the first time. I grew up playing hockey and soccer, very traditional sports at that time, certainly in Canada. And basketball really wasn't even that developed. And I remember playing on my first club basketball team in the eighth grade. And, uh, you know, what is basketball Ontario back then? You know, there's really only 10 competitive clubs back then. And now there's literally hundreds and it just shows you the difference in the rise of basketball which has been tremendous but I was not a part of that I played for a football coach in high school Uh, I played for a lot of different coaches that had such a positive influence on my life but I would say none of them are were basketball coaches and none of them were like you know what we would understand today someone like yourself or me that if we coach high school or we coach college or whatever we're putting so much time and effort into it whether we're getting paid or not paid or not because we love basketball coaching so that that was such an interesting thing and I think I was raised in a way where uh, I was exposed to being very open-minded and to be able to approach things from that perspective of saying what can I learn from this and how can it help me and uh, that's really what happened through kind of hockey and soccer I loved and I had success but it got to a point where I was an introvert and I just wanted to play a sport by myself sometimes mm-hmm. Because you always needed people to play road hockey or you always needed people to play soccer to make it really meaningful. But basketball and golf to a certain extent, I didn't need anyone else and I could play on my own. And I found that that was really my initial attraction to basketball was that I could practice and get better without depending on. So that really aligned with me. And that's where the journey took me from there. And, uh, you know, high school, great experience, all those things. But, uh, you know, I never played college basketball. I went to McMaster at a time when McMaster was really good. I just wasn't good enough to play at that level. So uh, it, it's, you know, I've kind of gone through all those different, um, I guess, phases of development for basketball and uh, never quite got good enough. So I think that helps me reflect back on how I could have done better or how my coaches could have done better as well. And I think, too, we've talked about on the show a few times because um, my high school coach, Rich Chambers, and, and many other coaches, you know, they don't have a, an extensive playing career. And I think so at times there's sort of this expectation that you had to be at some sort of level and... And it's and it's totally false in the sense that if you know how to work relationships with people and you work at getting better at the X's and O's, anyone can become a coach. And I think it's powerful and it's, and it's great to hear um, your story and to see how far you've come. Interesting too, an introvert. Hey, do you still find that? Is it like, are you? Do you appreciate? Totally. Yeah. Really. Hey. Yeah. <laughs> totally. It, a lot. A lot of this is a bit of a contradiction in the sense that, like, if I travel you know, to Sweden and speak in front of hundreds of coaches. It's like, I'm fully comfortable in that setting. I'm fully comfortable with the podcast. And and we know that. I mean, just confidence comes from proven results and confidence comes from, you know, starting from a knowledge base. And, uh, you know, I always said there was no limit on my mind. So I wasn't really hung up on the playing thing or anything like that. When I decided I wanted to coach basketball specifically was basically my second year at university. And, uh, I just decided right there I was going to learn as much as I could, however I could. And, you know, I got my car and supported by my parents to be able to go travel and work the camp circuit in the United States and learn through that. Any, 
VHS or DVD, I guess, at some point it became that, but that had any coaching related material, the old Don Meyer stuff where I know you know, uh, you know, those type of VHS and just devour everything, clinics, books. I mean, I remember going to the McMaster Library and just like they had the Dean Smith uh, biography and then the Dean Smith multiple offenses and defenses book and devouring it and just realizing like at, the, at that time, like there was so many, there were so few resources that I could just lean into. And I imagine like, I can't imagine growing up now with the access to so much learning. Yeah, such a good point. And I do like the throwbacks of, you mentioned the camp circuit, right? Like those were the times where whether you were a player or a coach, and we've had so many coaches talk about enjoying going to different camps and learning and growing from there. Um, any experiences within that that stick out to you along the way that you uh, like, were there a couple camps that were or they're too many to name. I mean, I was just blessed and grateful that people would always, and and th- that's what's different for people that don't understand nowadays. The NCAA put in new rules and different things where you can't have outside coaches, and you know it's all recruiting and cheating, and you know obviously uh, safety of the kids and all these different things. So I get why they changed some of it, but uh, it really has taken an opportunity away. And I think about that, like when I did that camp circuit, it was there's no Facebook, there's hardly email and stuff like that. That dates me a little bit, but <laughs> you know to to network and keep in touch with. People, people and have really meaningful relationships after the fact, you really had to work on it. And I still have many relationships after the fact. And one of them I'll share is this story where I was traveling actually out to Victoria to do the National Coaching Institute and my master's in education out there in Victoria. And I decided to get in my car and drive through the U.S. on the way. And uh, I needed a camp. So we called Wyoming. Um, It was me and my buddy who was just doing the trip with me to get out there and work camps. But um, and Wyoming just said, oh, yeah, listen, uh, come next week. We've got a spot for you. Uh, and then they said, hey, can you work two weeks? So we ended up staying in Laramie, Wyoming for two weeks with uh, Larry Shiat, Matt Driscoll, Scott Duncan, and just a tremendous group of people that, uh, you know, especially like Larry and Matt Driscoll have become great friends and Larry especially a great mentor and uh, all from randomly cold calling to say, hey, do you have a spot for me to work camp? on my way out to Victoria, BC. And uh, what a life experience and one that was unexpected and amazing all at the same time. I love it. So is that was that kind of the first step? So you started studying the game at Mac and doing your thing and you finished your first degree and then headed out west to do the program here? And, or did you did you get some coaching experience um, before you headed out this way? So uh, any Americans listening to this would be frustrated, but man, you think about circumstances and you think about some of the different things that, that, that just, again, shine a light on the opportunities that you had. And just saying that in Ontario and Canada at the time, I mean, I literally could coach as many teams as I wanted. Like Mm. there just weren't enough people that wanted to coach one. And then there were no restrictions. Like there's no NCAA rules. So I could be a volunteer at McMaster with the varsity, with the, the men's basketball team at McMaster with Joe Razzo, who, again, to this day has been arguably the biggest influence on my left and Hall of Famer for sure. Yeah, it's tremendous. So I, I was, by my second, third year, fourth year university, I knew I wanted to coach. So I actually went part-time so that I did university in five years. So I could coach at McMaster, coach, say, a JV boys team, coach a JV girls team, coach a varsity girls team, whatever they needed, wherever they needed it, club teams, provincial teams. I just coached. I would coach sometimes six or seven teams in a year. And I think about that again, that laboratory that I had where I was in a low pressure environment, a chance to be able to try stuff, throw stuff at the wall, see if it works. And, you know, I think there's just so many coaches that unfortunately don't have that opportunity to kind of coach in these 
lower stress environments and really see what they like and what 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 can work for them. So that was a big part of my journey was just that chance. And you know, I was fortunate. I coached some really good teams. Obviously, at McMaster, we were always always yes. you know top ten in the country. And um, I got to coach Hamilton St. Mary's at the time was when I first went to McMaster. Their high school was on campus at Mac, and no Joe Razzle was a teacher there. So <laughs> how about that? And they had a great tradition, boys and girls, really good. Joe, of course, had one officer there. So it ended up lucking out that um, by my third year, uh, Karen Kataya, who was the senior girls coach there, she was having another baby. So she decided to take a year off, and she let me coach the team. And we ended up, we lost the silver medal at OFSA, uh, you know, and uh, we won the next year. And it's just lucking into a situation where all of a sudden, you know, I got to coach talent and I got to coach really bad players at other places. So yeah, I got to coach it all and just be around those different environments. Important to point out, though, I mean, you're throwing yourself out there and taking those uncomfortable risks early is so vital, right? I think, you know, especially as a young coach, thinking, listening to you talk, I'm feeling a little bit of regret myself, just kind of how I wasn't able to take those risks as a coach and kind of was too stubborn to think, well, I kind of know the way, right? And it took me a long time to get there. But you clearly on the other side of it, just I'm going to coach young kids. I'm going to coach older kids and just really using it almost like a research lab. It's so cool to hear. It's like basketball nerd stuff. This is awesome. Hey, and I still do that with summer camps and all the camps that I've worked in my lifetime. And, uh, you know, I've been fortunate, like ever since I was 22, I've been involved in basketball camps and I've run my own camps and uh, I run camps now for Breakthrough Basketball in the United States. Mm -hmm. And all of those I feel are a laboratory too, where yeah. I feel I've become a better teacher. And you know that from the classroom, from coaching, the repetitions that you get. And that was another thing. And I, I just... I, I never wanted chronological age to be a limitation for me. Mm. And I wanted to pack as much as I could in as short a time as possible. Cause to be honest, I was a little impatient and I just wanted to be a head coach at the, you know, college university level or to move to the U S and coach there, whatever the opportunity was, I just wanted it. So, uh, the other part I did my teaching degree at, at Brock university after I graduated from McMaster as a, let's say backup plan, but I don't mean to say that to demean teaching because I love teaching and I still love teaching to this day, but it was always the goal to be a head, you know, college coach. And yeah. that's what I was going to work towards. Yeah, of course. No, no, that's great. And then, I mean, the, this, and this is the part where I think unless people, you know, dove really deep and, and paid attention to your story um, up until this point of your life, like it's just coaching full on. I mean, you know, you're assistant at Mac for six years, you know, you, you go out and I'm assuming you worked with Coach Vitri out at UVic and talk about Tremendous those experiences. Year. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. I, I could write a book just on those experiences and people that know Coach Vitri know what I'm talking about. Like, yeah. man, he was just such a different type of personality. I mean, he was so intelligent. He was so analytical. Man, that guy had stuff going on in his mind that I was like, wow. Like, <laughs> you <laughs> just thought what, differently. What year is this? Oh, let me see. Um... Yeah, I, I'm trying to remember now what year that would be. Remember any of remember. the guys? Uh, I, I don't want to screw up names and stuff, but uh, <laughs> Eric Eric was there for sure. Hendrickson? And I'm trying to remember if it was Eric's last year. Okay. Um, Ali Wilmont, Oli Schmidt. Ali and Oli were there. Um, Pat Cannon. Yeah, oh my God. I know you knew all these guys. Donnie Fitzpatrick. You would have played with most of those guys, yeah. wouldn't you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So you're so around some tremendous pretty good talent. Group. Yeah. Holy smokes. Oh, it, was, <laughs> it was an awesome group. And just, you know what? And what was so important, it was a completely different culture from Ontario. And yeah, from this is why I want to get into you. Yeah. 
Yeah, it was completely different. And, you know, Coach Vitri was arguably, well, I mean, I don't know if I could be around two more intense people than Joe Razzo and Guy Vitri. But the way that they displayed it and the way that they acted was completely differently in so many ways. Mm -hmm. So that was refreshing to see. Um, and we talk about that all the time, fighting kind of the way you were coached. And um, I, I mean, I think it was really important, not just the educational year, because I was around so many really, really cool professors at um, Victoria, too, who were just focused on coaching. Mm -hmm. And that's what I hadn't been focused on, you know, up until that point with my education was I always wanted to coach. And yet I was learning stuff that wasn't going to help me necessarily with coaching. So that was another part of that immersive year at Victoria is that uh, I got to spend time with Istan Valley and a bunch of people like that, that, you know, all their focus was, was coaching. And yeah. that was cool. That is cool. I know, yeah, and I know a lot of people at West that have gone through that program and taken a lot away from it. Um, and then, so you finish up there, what's the next move for you? It's like, okay, now it's go time. <laughs> I got to find something to uh, pay some bills here, right? Yeah. And that's amazing, isn't it? Like you have to pay bills, right? You have to yeah. get a job and uh, <laughs> that's great. And, and talking about that, like you think about my daughters and their generation, we're actually trying to constantly tell them, well, you don't have to only do that. Yeah. Like if my 10 year old daughter says, I want to be a pilot, I'm like, that's awesome. Let's be a pilot. What else do you want to do while you're a pilot? You know, mm -hmm. we want to run your own business. You want to be an entrepreneur. You want to do this or that or whatever it is. Yeah. Uh, and that was very different. And I was raised in a household. It was a very, it was an incredible household. And we'll talk about that later, I'm sure. But just basically, you know, my dad was an accountant. He went to work every day. He came home. It was a very traditional job. And I think when I started to talk about becoming a basketball coach, my parents were so supportive but they didn't necessarily understand. And I'll even go to the point now that I don't think my dad necessarily understands. Like, I think he's impressed that I'm making money without a traditional job, right? And uh, <laughs> it's been an amazing journey in that way. And the, the support from him and uh, my mom and the different things that came along the way are definitely such a big part of it. And uh, it was kind of fun to kind of constantly shift and go in a different direction. When I came back from Victoria, I decided not to get a teaching job mm -hmm. because I didn't want to be stuck making money, to be honest, because I yeah, knew yeah. once I started making money, I'd enjoy it. So instead, Steve Maga, if you remember that name. Oh, of course. Okay. He was an yeah, uh, all-Canadian, incredible yeah. player, a player Had of the year at show. Mac. And yeah. Yeah. Stud. Oh, my gosh. Great guy. And his dad, Jack Maga, was a principal at a um, adult education school in the Catholic school board. And luck had it that they needed someone to teach. And I said, listen, this is perfect for me. You know, there was no before, there was no after. We would show up and teach adults English, which was a phenomenally humbling experience. And it allowed me to teach and it gave, or, or sorry, it gave me time to be able to coach yeah. Uh, and still make enough money to be able to survive and sort of please my parents in that sense. It's so interesting, and I'm sure you find this as well. I know, you know, in your show, you talk probably more X's and O's than we would, ours is more stories, but kind of just how things do align for people along the way, right? And just these little sort of, a lot of the more humble people say, oh, well, I got lucky, right? But I think, you know, if you hard work and you prepare, then kind of lucky things come to you and just these little moments that change you, right? Like you say, you're probably right. If you did start teaching, you'd probably be 20 years into it and maybe you wouldn't have pursued. But wow, adult education, like just, I don't know. I, I find that stuff so intriguing. 
Thank you. And I agree. Like there's definitely luck to every component of your life to a certain extent. If you look back and you reflect and go, yeah, well, that was lucky for sure. I mean, Mm -hmm. we can all say that, but I do, I do think we undervalue the effort that goes into those opportunities. And uh, I couldn't agree more with what you're saying that, that I felt like I was very deliberate and intentional and put a ton of effort into achieving my goals and, uh, you know, I feel I feel grateful that obviously it worked out and humbled that it worked out. But I know that there was like intent and effort in that. No, that's great stuff. Um, I always think about the, the Scott Morrison episode from the Celtics and how, you know, he's basically a year from maybe being fired at Lakehead and takes a year leave and has to do some anger management stuff and then goes to the G League. And it's like, look at that, right? Like just that those little moments and the risks that people are willing to take. I think, you know, they come back. That's awesome. Great reflection. I I don't think there's a Canadian coach I respect more than Scott. Mm. And and I I coach against him. So I know exactly what we're talking about when we say that he was he was not successful Mm -hmm. uh, to his level of, you know, capabilities for sure. And to, first of all, take that year. And then secondly, obviously, to take the leap to the G League like he did. Yeah. Man, I mean, again, he should be celebrated and studied. I agree. As should so many Canadian coaches. I mean, Rich Chambers, you mentioned already, just thinking about guys like that, that just have been in service to our game and have built this foundation. And I'll be honest, I don't think Basketball Canada does a very good job in celebrating our own coaches and mm. all the people that have done such a great job impacting the game. And you just mentioned two right there already. And I know there's hundreds more. Yeah. Wow. This is gold. <laughs> Corpse is just like nodding and nodding. This is great. <laughs> all right. So tell us about that first opportunity for some university coaching and how the process went for you and what it was like, the ups and downs, the in-betweens, the learning how to manage a short budget in Canadian basketball and all those fun things in between. But I'm sure it was a great experience for you. Incredible experience. And, uh, you know, so I interviewed uh, Laurentian women. I interviewed for PEI. And I think UNBC at the time was also coming out with their program, but no gym or anything like that. But I remember talking to the athletic director. And there are different things like that that you kind of go, oh, I could have been in one of those places. But all of them fell through for different reasons. And then Queens came up. And I'll be honest, I didn't know a lot about Queens or Kingston other than obviously it's the Ivy League of Canada or self-described mm-hmm. Ivy League of Canada. And, uh, you know, it just so happened that I really vibed, uh, you know, John McFarlane, the athletic director at the time, Janice Deacon, who was uh, definitely a huge, huge supporter. And uh, they said some they said some things that implied that they wanted to be serious and they wanted to try and be good at basketball. And uh, Carlton at the time was just beginning its run. So they were experiencing that. And uh, that aligned with me, too, in the sense that and I think that's the biggest challenge for all of us as Canadian coaches is dealing with administrators that that honestly don't quite. I'm not even saying they don't get it. I'm saying they just have they have no option. They have no resources to give us, really. So Mm -hmm. we have to create our own. (laughs) <laughs> and um, that that's such a challenge. And at Queens, that was it. And I remember, you know, and I'll tell you a quick, quick story about my frustration that helped change some things there was basically I'd go to them and say, listen, Carlton's not charging their players for, uh, you know, their athletic fees. So I'm going to pay athletic fees out of fundraise money. So say I have to raise whatever, $1,500, 100 bucks per player or whatever. They immediately said, no, you can't mm-hmm. do that. I said, why can't I do that? They said, well, no other team does that. I'm like, well, 
All I know for ba- I can only speak about bas- men's basketball, but men's basketball has done nothing but lose in the last 30 years. So how about we try something different? And if it doesn't work, that's fine. But let's at least try something different. Yeah. And that struck them. I think, well, it struck a chord with certainly a lot of people there to say, hey, listen, maybe we should consider doing some things a little bit differently, because if you keep doing them the same way, you're going to have the same result. Uh, And that applied there, and then it applied to Windsor. I was only at Queens for three years. We got better every year. Uh, We never got good, but we got better every year, (laughs) and we got to 500, which had never, you know, hadn't happened for a really long time. And uh, the program's in really good position after that with Rob Smart and now Steph Barry doing a great job. And really proud of that. I'm really proud of the experience. But uh, I, I can remember my first win. And it didn't have no Christmas. And a kid had to make a bank shot basically to win at Ryerson. And uh, we didn't win again until our, we won three of our last four games that year. And got good enough where it was going to build some momentum into the next year. And uh, it was such a great experience as well. And as a young coach, when you think back on the, those early times, is there anything that you would change or do differently? Or do you not think like that? You just think I'm constantly learning and growing. Like I'm just intrigued to know what you think now. Well, I think every coach goes through this, whether they admit it or not. I wish we did admit it more, but I felt like an imposter <laughs> for so many of my first years coaching, just saying, whoa, like, like, you know, think about me coaching against Don Horwood or something and just going, oh, wait a minute. He has a counter to the counter to the counter and my team's not prepared for it. Yeah. Oh, no. Right. And, and, and people that can ref- I know you had Don on, but people that can reflect on kind of his teams and you just go, OK, all they're doing is running a cross screen. Come mm-hmm. on. It's pretty damn simple. Right. But meanwhile, they have, you know, six different variations and six different reads and six different. And it was so humbling every game to be able to come out of that. But you gradually build your confidence. You gradually, you know, go through your own process of developing your own self-efficacy. And, uh, you know, there's there's got to be this unshakable belief in what you're doing is benefiting your players and benefiting your program. And, uh, you know, I had been fortunate to be mentored by enough people and be around enough people that I knew that at least I was doing the right things, whether they were working or not yet. I knew I was on the right track. And were you... Did you tap into those mentors along the way too? Or you were you the type of coach that was pick up the phone, send an email, tell me, you know, they ran this against us. How do I do that? Or were you sitting in your in your studio trying to figure it out yourself? <laughs> <laughs> I probably did too much by myself, and I, I say that that was a huge mistake for me. I, I didn't call Coach Razzo enough. I didn't co- call Coach Vitri enough. You know. Uh, Dave Smart became a little mentor because I worked with him with the provincial team, but he's a competitor. So, like, how much is he really? You know, I probably <laughs> needed some people outside of it. And, and honestly, what I, this is an example, like uh, some Division One head coaches that work with me right now, they intentionally work with me because I am completely unbiased and don't know anything basically about their school and the politics and any of this stuff. And I can kind of approach it from a perspective of when they ask questions and they call it the text, I can always just say, hey, listen, yeah, I, I don't know anything about that, but here's what I know. Mm. Or here's what I think, or here's where I come from with this. And I, I, I definitely needed that and I didn't. And I know why, I mean, I was an introvert. So I was a little shy. I wasn't sure, you know, Coach Razzo really wanted to spend any time talking to me. Of course he did. But it's like those things. And then honestly, if I had texting or email like we have nowadays, I would have been a far better person at using my mentors just because those conversations could have happened in a quicker, more direct way, which has always been my communication style as well. Interesting. 
And I think it's cool you found it like you can already hear that you're using those things in your parenting, right? Like you're pushing your kids to be and using your learning as a young person into your parenting. I just a little sidebar, but super cool. It is so cool. I love being a parent. And and for that reason, to be honest, too, it's like, Mm -hmm. like you're challenging yourself to do things a little bit differently, but at the same time to still honor what you know works from your upbringing or from other people or being around other parents. And that was such a great part of coaching, by the way, as a young person, I was around so many families, you know, whether it was at the high school level, club level, or as I moved into, you know, being a college coach and my assistants had kids or different things like that. So I was just around a lot of people that were great mentors as parents. And uh, honestly, I don't know if there's anything that I did better than mentor being a parent to my players when I was at Windsor and we finally had kids to say that my kids were going to be around, they're going to be involved. And I was going to always make sure that they were a part of my life and my experience in coaching. And uh, I think, I think it's breaking down Aaron, but there's still this kind of like fallacy of what coaching is and we got to be hard and serious and can't have fun and all that stuff. And I was definitely someone that bought into that. And I would have been a better coach if I got beyond that early but making sure my kids were involved in my life and involved in my coaching was such a big part of that. So I'm grateful for that as well. Love it. Yeah. It's funny too. Um, we, we have a course called career life for the grade 11s. And one of the things they do, they're a little off topic here, but you obviously enjoy some of the same things I do. So let's talk about it. And they have to do capstone project and it's we call it a passion project. So yeah. Okay. You do want to be a pilot, but pilot, but is there an instrument you want to learn how to play? You want to learn how to cook, right? And one of the things we really push the kids to get is a mentor, right? The the more mentors you can get at a younger age, because no matter what you choose to do, there's going to be some people you need to fall back on. And it might be for a reference. It might be for advice, but so important. And I think coaching is no different. And you're totally right. Like, I probably should have called Richie Chambers more, but it was, you know, there's a little bit of self-pride and I can figure this out. But why don't we allow ourselves to be a little more vulnerable and do those things? Because you're not, you're not bad at what you're doing. You're trying to get better. And that's life, right? Such a great point. And uh, you think about ego and you think about you, you need an ego to be a good coach, to be an effective coach. I really believe that you need an ego because you need a self-belief in what you're doing, that it can improve your players and help your team win. But that ego also gets in the way of you growing and experiencing just what you and I talked about, which is calling our mentors and and being humble, you know, in those experiences. And I'll tell you, this followed followed me quite a bit. And, and I reflect back and go, this is one of the most important things I did is that my interest off the court shifted. So all I did for probably my first five years in coaching was read and devour every basketball thing imaginable, biographies coaching clinics, whatever, everything imaginable. And that was it. It was an absolute obsession with basketball. And then I kind of got bored with basketball and it became an obsession with leadership and business. And especially business and reading about business was basically reading about coaching in a completely different context, which was so impactful. And then, as you can imagine, later it became parenting and just devouring what I could on parenting and understanding that and all those things. And I really think what you just said for your young people is so important that they have these experiences beyond even what they think they want to do because it does help shape what they're doing. And you never know what's going to connect. That's the thing. We never know what's going to connect with what we do in coaching or teaching. I feel like I'm like five or six years behind you. I got a four and a half year old, but I I, I feel the like 
get a little bit of the hair standing up because I was same like I was pure X's and O's and then I'm like whoa what's this book called Legacy and like who are these who's Simon Sinek and who's Brene Brown and how can you adapt that to your personal life your family life and your coaching life and it, and, it, and in the end of the day we can go on your site and look at all the resources but if I can't connect what I'm teaching to my kids am I am I really a coach you know what I mean so good stuff well, can I just share like quickly, like, yeah, that, that's really what came of it is like, if you want to know where basketball immersion and all the philosophies evolved from, it was two parts. It was one education, which is I was exposed to some professors that did some really cool stuff, including Joan Vickers and different people like that, that were doing decision training research. And they were just doing stuff in skill acquisition that connected with me. And I was always obsessed with practical. I just hated wasting my time on stuff that wasn't going to actually help me. <laughs> and so those things drove me to learn exactly what I wanted to learn, which is great. But the other part of all of that is that uh, as I was getting educated, I had opportunities, well, I had an outlet for that education because I was coaching. Mm-hmm. So I had a chance to go and say, okay, I can I come back from a coaching clinic. Chances are I had a team I could go try some stuff on. And, you know, it's not just that. I had this. I had this theory and then I had this practical. And for me, obsessed with the practical has always been a case. So when I look back at those practices I was at at McMaster and I talked to players and I really reflect, and it wasn't done like in a backstabbing Coach Razzle way. It was done in a curiosity way to say, hey, why are you doing it this way? Mm. What do you like about this? What do you not like about this? And it was just such a curiosity how much players didn't like drills and they wanted to play basketball. And then it never, I never kind of quite connected and said, why aren't we playing more basketball? Mm-hmm. And I always have the line now saying, why do they have to wait to the end of practice to have dessert? Why, why can't they have dessert at the beginning, in the middle, at the end of practice? Like, and that's kind of how we used to treat five on five and playing basketball. It was drill, 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 and then at the end you play. Mm-hmm. And it's like that never aligned with me because when I talked to players, it didn't align with them. Mm-hmm. And that's where the interest in kind of like I learned about a game's approach to coaching. And at the same time, I learned that players didn't like drills. Go figure. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's like dinner time with my kid, man. It's hey, you you can have your sweet thing whenever you want, but you got to have the rest. You know, like give them yeah. the choice, right? Yeah, it's funny. Well, and that, what a great example, by the way. Like, mm. do and I, this is kind of relates to like shooting a layup. Do I care if they shoot one of your prescribed daily dozen, <laughs> or do I care that they score, or that they ta- they made a great decision in shooting it? Right. Mm-hmm. And that's what that dessert example, I'm going to steal and use that, by the way, because that's awesome. It's yeah. true. Who cares when he eats his dessert? We just yeah. care that he eats it all. Yep. <laughs> you choose, man. You can have the power. Right. But uh, that's great. I think I read an article. I think it was one you shared, too, is like slap me in the face. It was about like, why do we do three man weave? And I was like, oh, I wanted to crawl into a friggin' hole after I read that thing. <laughs> it's like this article is the biggest slap in the face, but so true. Right. And it's just. You're providing people an, an opportunity to see things differently, which is all we really want, right? Well, but think about that, just that scenario, three-man weave. Like, hmm. you didn't question it as a player nope. because, right. you know, one, your coaches have always done it. And two, like, if you literally went to a college or a professional practice, you'd probably see them doing three-man weave. So <laughs> it was validated because people were using it. Well, Duke's doing it, and they're going to win. Well, they're winning for a lot of reasons, and it's not three-man weave, I can tell you that. And I'm not even saying there's anything wrong with three-man weave. The point is more the point to almost anyone when they think about what they do is like, okay, how are you loading it? 
How are you adding challenge? How are you adding desirable difficulties? How are you causing struggle? How are you making it more mindful for your players? Because mm -hmm. that's what we know about a lot of those drills. They're, they were mindless. They were repetitive. And ultimately, because of that, they don't transfer much at all to the game. And yeah. that's what's the key part of all that. We want to take a moment and thank our sponsor, Parkside Brewery. Located in the heart of Port Moody on Brewers Row, Parkside offers an amazing atmosphere with one of the best summer patios around. If you can't make it to the brewery located at 2731 Murray Street, then hit any government retail store and try the Don Pilsner, the Dusk Pale Ale, or my favorite, the Dreamboat Hazy IPA. A Hoops Journey promises that the beer at Parkside is much, much, much better than the owner Sam Payne's streaky jump shot. We hope to see you Parkside. After a brief hiatus, Good Lad Clothing has returned, but under a new location, 3283 Main Street is where they can be found. Name drop a hoops journey to get 10% off any clothing items in store. The store no longer offers barber, but you can find the best retail around. Thanks to our sponsor, Good Lad Clothing, and we hope to see you there. Let's talk about kind of Windsor and that experience. How have you grown as a coach? And I love you how you talked about incorporating your family because I'm looking forward. My kids will be in kindergarten next year and I'm going to bring him to as many practices and have him be around and, and soak it up. He can choose what he wants to do, but I, I think it's so vital for the, the players to see a different side of me as well. Um, and how was that experience at Windsor? And then how does all this sort of <laughs> come into play? I mean, it's a huge question, but well, Windsor was great. I mean, I, we had tremendous success there. Um, we had success early. We won an OUA championship in my second year. And we recruited players back from the U.S. And we were one of the first schools to do that. And now everyone obviously does it. And uh, it, you know, during my time, we lost that advantage and that hurt us. Because Windsor is a geographic periphery, right? It's not yeah. like, it's not in the middle of Ontario. It's a geographic periphery. So there were some challenges in that way. But uh, by and large, we I fell into a group that was already pretty good, and they just didn't have the right guidance. And then we got some transfers. Greg Cermak, who arguably could have been Player of the Year, um, the year Jacob Dorkson won at Victoria. But uh, that that was that type of player that was just he's still playing professionally. So we fell into some players that are really good. So we won an OEA championship, beating Carlton on our home floor in front of a packed overflow gym that people were watching it on television outside and it just completely that was 27 years since they had won so it ch completely changed the whole experience right away and we we were lucky that 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 happened and then from there we were consistently good you know for probably the next six seven years and then we kind of struggled a little bit because we lost some of our advantages and uh leadership change at windsor and i think we all go through that as you know most 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 administrators will say yes when it comes to something other than money <laughs> Get that on a shirt. Our place started to become no when it became almost anything. And they just simply didn't want to take that next step and put that next level of effort into us competing against Carlton, Ottawa, Ryerson, Brock, all these schools that were putting a lot more into it in terms of resources and just saying yes. I'll give you a quick example of what, like, hey, uh, Carlton gives out, you know, 60 tickets to their coach to be able to deliver to their families or to recruits or whoever they want every game. Our place just would refuse to do something like that. And it was just like, why? That's such an easy yes. Mm -hmm. First of all, again, who cares? Let's have people at our games. 
because those 60 people, you know, okay, you're going to make some money off some of them, but by and large, my kids' parents already pay for their kid to go to school. We don't need to charge them money. So there's some logical stuff like that that was just like always that – and anyone that's coaching youth sport, by the way, in any sport, basically in Canada, knows exactly what I'm talking about. Yeah. <laughs> you know, the expectations outweigh the resources. Mm-hmm. Yeah. At, at high school, at college, and, and I'm not and, even saying it's wrong. No. And what are your quick thoughts about like how do we – how do we make it better? You know, like, how do we make that happen? And how do, how do we improve it? It's not as simple as to say, like, well, it's just money. But uh, is there anything that can be done? Or do you just think that where we're at, it's not enough of a priority for the leadership to make it a priority? It's not. And it's, yeah. it's, it's, it's approaching things from solution based instead of problem based. Right? If let's, okay, we spend way too much time or we spend I can only speak about my experiences dealing with my administrators. At any stop, but basically, we spent way too much time on problems rather than solutions. And I think anyone that's coached for a long time or taught for a long time, you can begin to understand like the value of spending time on solutions. It's like, don't come to me with a problem, come to me with a solution. So I would try and never go to my athletic director without a solution to the problem. Unfortunately, a lot of times, as you know, the, problem, the solution is money. But I was smart enough to know that, look, if I just go to them and say I need $10,000, I'm not getting that. I got to find that on my own. So the other part would be to just alleviate some of the, I guess, restrictions on coaches being able to go out and find the money. Because I think people would be surprised that even then, like sometimes you're restricted about who you can ask and where you can go. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and that's just kind of a part of it, you know, whether it's sponsors or certain alumni and different things like that, that are like, you know, they're off, they're off limits. You can't ask them. So it's like, okay, that's fine. So what's the solution? Yeah. Yeah, that's the constant thing. Yeah, I, I like that perspective too. I thinking about how many times you know on the coaches WhatsApp group chat after a game, we talk about Jimmy and Johnny and Steve O who did this wrong, but we don't ever talk about what can we do tomorrow at practice to improve them and get them better. So it's like, okay, Coach Chris, you know, was not guarding the ball screen very well yesterday, and we just continue to harp on that as to why we lost or weren't successful, as opposed to. All right. Well, what can we do for Coach Chris tomorrow to make sure that he's learning from that? So love that push, putting it into those two words. Awesome. Well, thank you. I mean, again, I don't have all the answers, but <laughs> no, I no. think I think most of us try and approach things from a, a logic that sometimes gets bogged down when it gets into other layers of administration, right? And at the end of the day. I think the most difficult thing if I was to comment is that most youth sport athletic departments fall under academic, academic, you know, I guess, bosses, mm-hmm. right? Where it's not, it's not like an athletic department is this special, you know, separate thing on campus. It falls under student affairs or it falls under physical education. Can you still, like, I'm just like, obviously it's not a priority if it's not its own domain. Yeah. And I think athletic departments miss the boat a little bit with that because that autonomy and that that positioning, which exists in the U.S., yeah, some of it's monetary, but most of it is just because, you know, now we can feel more autonomous in the sense that we have to find solutions for ourselves and not go up above and keep asking and begging. Thanks for that answer. It's good stuff. So give everybody a little bit of insight about the, the morning that Chris Oliver gets out of bed and says, you know what? I think I'm just going to take a huge risk and go for it. And uh, and how sort of your 
your platform and all that you've done, um, all the hard work. I mean, it's amazing what you've been able to accomplish. And I know you're still hungry, but at what point do you just say, this is what I'm going to go for? And, and the why? Tell us why you did it. So my wife and I were both, I guess, investigating the online world. She works, Jen Oliver works a lot with um, business uh, coaching and she's been involved in like million dollar launches and different things like that. So this, this online world that she was in and she was already doing a podcast and she was doing some stuff. And at first when I thought about it, I thought, I can't do that. Like I'm coaching. And then I kind of came up with this idea that saying, why don't I authentically share exactly what I'm doing? And then, you know, that became this idea of basketball immersion. I'll tell you, two years before I launched basketball immersion, I lost my confidence in doing it because I saw somebody else do something that I thought, oh, they're already doing it and they're going to do it better. And isn't that crazy? But we all go through that self-talk in our minds, no matter what human we are. We go through kind of these negative self-talk or this thought stopping that's just like, wait a minute. And it ended up working out because, and, and I'd say the real impetus is I'm grateful that my family all supported this. My, my daughters were two and four at the time and my wife, and we went on a sabbatical where I took a year off and we traveled the world. Cool. Uh, and we went to 17 countries around the world. A lot of it was basketball, but a lot of it was like, okay, can I live differently and can I do this? Because my wife definitely was the one that was like manifesting this. So that experience gave me confidence that I could do it. And, you know, it's hard because you leave a paycheck, right? I'm getting paid every two weeks to now, I don't know what's coming in for these two weeks or this month. And that was hard at first. And it was, it just involved a little bit of a shift, but you know, the way we did it, I mean, I left Windsor, we sold our house, we moved to the U S and we started to work for ourselves. And that was a really kind of like, just throw yourself in the deep end, which I think is another advantage is like doing it halfway which is the way I kind of I was doing it. It was leading to success and it was growing. But man, I had to throw myself in the deep end and learn how to swim to really be able to get it to the next level. And uh, that's where we're at now. And I feel that. Yeah. So how how many years has it been? So 2014 was 14, basketball okay. merchants launch. Okay. So, you know, we're... Wow. Still young. Yeah. We're basically yeah. two years into full time doing it. Mm-hmm. And I'll tell you the other part of the podcast, the basketball podcast, which is maybe arguably done as much for the brand as anything over the last two years is only two years old too. Right. And that, that was something that my wife pushed me to do. And, um, you know, has given me access to, to, to coaches at all levels around the world, which has just been extraordinary. And, you know, I know, you know what I'm talking about. It's just been fun to be able to have these conversations, hasn't it? Oh, it's so cool. It's like just selfishly, it's amazing. The Jeff Van Gundy episode was friggin' awesome, by the way. Oh my God, I love that episode. Can I tell you something quickly about that yeah. too? I was so, yeah. you know, I, I'm prepared for everything just like you are, but <laughs> I was prepared. But kind of his answer to my first question threw out any other question I had after that. Because when he started to, like, he basically said, I wish I played more five on five as a coach. Yeah. When he said that, yeah. I was like, okay. I can go there and I can start to open this a little bit more. And I think it had a huge impact on people like him saying it. Because I know I say it, but it's like, who's this guy? Like, it's great. Yeah. I'm like, Jeff Van Gundy. Okay. Like he yeah. agrees that we should be playing more basketball and basketball practice. Well, go figure. Like his, his like dry sort of sarcastic way of talking oh, about yeah. it too. Like it's so, the delivery is just so like, yeah, it's awesome. And you're right. Like who are some of those, you know, and I know one ever, no one ever likes to call certain people out, but have there been a couple episodes as a podcaster yourself that you've been like, wow, that was great. Or are you learning more about yourself and your, 
what you can do going from introvert to extrovert or. And, and that not that great? Like I have, I have no problem talking to you because we're talking about coaching. We're talking about basketball. We're talking about these things. You mm-hmm. know, it's funny because if, you know, my wife takes me out and we're out, say, you know, somewhere at a party and there's a whole bunch of people and they don't really know what I do. Those yeah. are the conversations I struggle with because it's like, you know, any day somebody asks you, oh, you're a teacher and you, you, you have, what do you do? And you say, I'm a teacher and I'm a coach. And automatically people think something of that. Right. And, and how many people, again, here's my other part. How many people actually ask you good questions? I love having conversations with people that have deep conversations relative to the questions and they have a curiosity and an open mindedness. And if not, then what I learned as an introvert is, okay, that's fine. I'm just going to ask great questions and Mm. I'll get something out of it. If they don't want to ask any questions, that's cool. And I just kind of accepted that. And that helped me a lot and helps me a lot, obviously, on the podcast. Yeah, Because at the end of the day, it's the importance of the question almost more than anything else to just be able to give people a platform to be able to say what they need to say. Taking notes, Corbs? Corbs is a big introvert, too. So (laughs) it's like, yeah. I can talk about things when I want to. I give him a hard time all the time. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so does my wife, to be honest. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Like, it's it's just weird. Like, uh, I don't know. It's just like, you know, when you you tell someone they coach and they kind of say, well, what do you do all day? Like, I just know from there, it's just not going to be a real conversation (laughs) because they don't really get it. They don't understand it. You know, and it's not a knock on them. It's just like a lot of people really just have this impression of what certain people do rather than the reality of what we do. Before we get into some fun questions, just what's the vision for you and the B-Ball immersion like going forward? Um, how are you going to continue to grow the brand and expand the game? And and I can't wait for the day that, you know, well, hopefully you can get clinics back full on. And um, we're hoping to have a Hoops Journey coaching clinic here one day and we'd love to have you. But uh, count me in. Yeah. What's your what's the next five, 10 years look like for you? So the, 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 the pre-pandemic living down here, working for myself, I, I could say yes to everything. And that's really why I left my job, because I could say yes to opportunities. So I got to travel to New Zealand, uh, Sweden twice, Australia, throughout America, doing clinics and consulting and camps. And it was unbelievable. And I loved that year. It was such a tremendous year. And then obviously the pandemic ha- hit and uh, all of us were thrown for a wrench. You know, my wife all of a sudden had me around more, different things like that, that like, you know, we're just not... We're not used to those things. We are always traveling and doing different things. So it's really helped us kind of grow as people in really challenging ways. So I, I'm just super excited to get back out and do live and travel and be able to share. And, uh, you know, to me, that's my social too. Like that's my social experience is be able to kind of travel to Australia, wherever, and have these conversations with people and imagine mm-hmm. that. So definitely the travel component, hopefully more consulting. The basketball podcast keeps growing and potentially leading into Doing some more mainstream type of media, you know, who knows, like broadcasting, doing some different things like that where you can provide. I think fans and I think people in general want a more in-depth approach to how we talk about the game of basketball, right? We see that with analytics. So I think that's another thing that potentially that's going to happen over time is people would rather listen to Hubie Brown than Bill Walton, right? And it's not that Bill's not entertaining. It's just that Hubie's going to share something that... I can that really will stimulate my thinking about coaching or basketball. And I think that's the direction it's going. So I hope to be a part of that. And then uh, the biggest thing, the platform has given me an opportunity now to be able to be in service of other coaches. So immersionvideos.com now, we can provide access to Doug Novak. We can provide access to Aaron Fern and different coaches that, you know, to be honest, should be on a platform that allows them to be able to share their knowledge. And uh, we can provide opportunities for them. 
Uh, Dave Smart, obviously, is another huge one that people would know. Like Dave, well, Dave shares nothing, and he shared all access videos of his practices. And it's been a huge hit and a huge success because there's so much mystery around him. But uh, <laughs> just, again, this, these opportunities to be able to support other people and support their intellectual property, which is the biggest part for me, is I think coaches have always been at all levels, and teachers too. Just the expectation is we're supposed to give it away for free. And you know that there's no lawyer or dentist giving you something for free. <laughs> and yet you as a teacher are always supposed to be in service of others. That's fine. But you should also be rewarded for your intellectual property that goes above and beyond your day of teaching. And uh, that's what we try and do with coaches is to be able to help support them in their intellectual property. So a whole bunch of projects around that, around the, our immersion incubator, where coaches of ideas jump in and then we help nurture their business and develop it for them. I think my intellectual property is like a hundred square foot <laughs> studio suite. That's about as much intellect as I have. But I love that saying. That's so so well said. Corbs, Thank before you. we move on, do you have a couple questions? Uh, yeah. So I actually have two questions for you, Coach. Um, yeah, sorry, bitch. Um, but first one's a fun one. Is uh, How much does coaching affect your parenting or does parenting more affect your coaching or is it kind of inter interwoven for you? Yeah, I mean, interwoven is a good one. But you know what? I would say I became – I became a better coach certainly when I had kids. And I'll tell you, I'll be honest with everyone. I've talked about this on my podcast. My biggest regret is that I never found a better way to be able to balance my competitiveness with my philosophical side. And I find I'm a much better analytical, philosophical coach. You know, I'm very aligned with Eastern philosophy. I'm very aligned with let it happen, not make it happen. I'm very aligned with all of that in my kind of day-to-day -day life. But when it came to coaching, as soon as the competition started, it completely changed me as a person. And I felt like I was I was angry. I felt like I wasn't as effective a coach. I felt like I was frustrated easier, all these things. And man, I just wish I had, you know, whether it's therapy or different types of mentors or different types of platforms to be able to help change that because I would have been a better coach. And I know I would have been a better coach. And um, my daughters and the influence of them and parenting them definitely helped shape that more, that understanding of saying, wow, there was a better way for me. How come I couldn't find it at the time? And, uh, you know, I think that's a challenge for a lot of us. I think we see that we want to change. But as you know, it's just it's it's easier to keep doing what you're doing, you know, and to give up to give up something that, you know, for an unknown potential better is a really difficult thing. But I think the humans that do that throughout their life are the ones that evolve and have the best experience being on this planet. So I hope to continue that or develop that more uh, in this kind of post-coaching life. Awesome. And uh, my last uh, question is, um, you were talking about like when you were at Queens and Windsor about, you know, you, you wish you kind of uh, reached out to a Joe Razzle more and you reached out to uh, Guy Vici more. Did you find a lot of value in talking to contemporaries like like a Jimmy Deruin or like a Scott Morrison while you guys are competing head to head? But you, know, you guys, you know, is there a text conversation? Is there a text? Is there an OUA group chat going on there? <laughs> no, and no, and there and there certainly were some coaches. Brad Campbell at Western is, a, is an incredible friend of mine, and uh, we would definitely 
support each other. Thomas Corey, who's now at Nipissing as well, and then Dave Smart to a certain extent as well. But I'll tell you, and, and look, I consider you, you mentioned, I mean, mentioned any Canadian coach that coached during my era, and I would consider them a friend and a colleague. You know, even though we weren't necessarily friends because we were competing against each other, I knew the barrier to our friendship was simply competition. And if you remove the competition, there wasn't a coach that I didn't have a great conversation with. But the, the way that our schedule worked, the, the change in tournaments, the growth in too many games in our leagues removed these opportunities for us as coaches to socialize. And that, that had a serious impact on, I think, the, the camaraderie and the, the interaction you had with your colleagues. So I would say that should have been more, but it was just less because of the nature of the job, uh, the nature of, obviously, I already mentioned my competitiveness, but just, you know, and to be honest, I was an introvert. So it's like you're at a basketball tournament and co- there's a coach in social, I'm there. If you're asking me to organize that social, that was harder for me to do because, again, at the end of the day, do I do I think Jimmy Drew really wants to hang out with me after a game? <laughs> Depends if he won or lost, probably yeah. right. And who's you buying? Know? Yeah, and those are our opportunities, but definitely texting. I mean, I should, I should. Well, and I did later. You know, when texting obviously became more valuable, that became a better part of it. That there was just these simple texts and these different communications. Mm. Cool. Thank you. All right. You ready? I'm ready. Super appreciate your time. This has been awesome. I don't feel like you could go on for, well, you could go on for hours and hours, <laughs> but uh, you talked about how you have read a ton um, and enjoy reading and still do. Are there a few books that stand out for you overall, or maybe a book that you've recently read um, that has stuck with you for any any reason? Doesn't have to be a basketball one, just anything in general. So, Thinking Body, Dancing Mind um, was one of those original. Like I, I remember growing up, and I don't know how I got aligned a little bit with Eastern philosophy and stuff like that. But this was one of the first Eastern philosophy books that um, connected with sport and, and approached it specifically from a sport perspective or perspective. And uh, that was one of those kind of early books that aligned with me. Uh, Man's Search for Meaning uh, by Viktor Frankl. Uh, again, kind of deep philosophical stuff. It's a little bit around kind of psychotherapy and different things. But it basically talked about finding a purpose. And if you find a purpose that you can basically persevere. So these were kind of books that I read when I was pretty young. And they kind of stuck with me in that sense that they aligned with my mission of what I wanted to do was just become a coach. And one of them was reminding me to relax into it. Don't fight it. Do the right things and, you know, it'll flow and it'll happen. And the other one was telling me to continue to follow my purpose. And those things definitely had a huge influence. And I'll be honest, too. Like, over the last five years, I do not read books. And that might Mm -hmm. surprise people. I don't read books as much anymore. I, I, I read journal articles. I read short articles. And that's why I love Twitter. People send out an article and I'm like, I can get a quick view of it. And then if somebody's talking about something really interesting, I can go dive deeper on it. Um, But maybe it's mainly through Google and pocketing articles, pocket app and different things like that. So I can read articles and I love doing that more. And then obviously podcasts. And I learned my business simply from getting in my car, working basketball camps in the U.S., uh, the year that uh, before we were going around the world, and I listened to any podcast imaginable on 
you know, online business. And that's how I learned. And uh, it was tremendous in that way. So, you know, so many of those I can recommend as well. But uh, those are two of the early ones. Man, you got a phenomenal, like your growth mindset is amazing. Super cool. Thank you. Who's been some of the most important people in your life? Well, I mean, family, definitely. Like my dad, my dad is one of those dads, even though I told you, like, he didn't quite get what I was trying to do necessarily, but man, he showed up for everything and he supported everything and, you know, working the way he did. I know I was very fortunate that my dad was always there. Mm -hmm. He was always there. And and that showing up and that being present and that holding space has also been such a huge part of me understanding how to coach and be a parent better is that look, your kids don't need you and your players don't need you always to be in their space telling them something. Sometimes you just need to be in their space or to be able to create space or create an environment for them to be able to be free and be creative. And that's really the biggest takeaways. And I realized that in reflecting on my dad that, uh, you know, it wasn't what he said. It was just that he always had space and time for me in that he's going to sit in the stands. He's going to watch one of my games, Hmm. you know, and I think about how cool that was. And that's why it's, I find it hard to ever really criticize beyond criminal type things, criticize a coach because a coach, man, can just be a good coach just by opening the gym and holding space for you. Mm-hmm. And that's pretty powerful. And, uh, you know, if we appreciate that more, I think coaching would definitely be appreciated more as a profession beyond the winning and losing, which we evaluate coaches on too much. Ooh, love it. What are the family's thoughts about ketchup on macaroni? <laughs> so I had a player, Monty Hardware, one of, you know, he was a tremendous five-year player for us. And uh, man, he put ketchup on everything. So I didn't really <laughs> experience this until, and literally if we would go get pasta at a restaurant, like as a team meal, which we did no. often, no tomato sauce, he'd put ketchup on it. Oh my. So Lock him up right ke- now. Yeah, the ketchup is kind of it's a bit of a bit of a hang up for me because of that. I'm just like I don't want to go that far, but yeah, uh, one of my daughters <laughs> likes ketchup, one of them doesn't, and it just shows you again these individual freedoms and creativity that comes with it and um, uniqueness. But uh, I would not be putting ketchup. I my wife Jenna Jenna is just a tremendous foodie mm. uh, in the sense that we live we live it's clean, a simple, a food life is imaginable, and I so value that. And it doesn't cook anything complicated. I don't cook anything complicated, but we cook good food, cook it well, and we keep it simple. And uh, that's that's really been a big part of it. So it's probably a deeper answer than you ever wanted when it came to I was going to say, he even yeah. broke down the X's and O's of his two daughters <laughs> and their ketchup eating. Yeah. Wow, that's phenomenal stuff. I, oh, <laughs> I, love, I love watching them and learning. Ketchup on pasta should be illegal. Yeah, ketchup on pasta should be – it awesome. shouldn't be an, an option. Yeah, yeah, it should be a no from the server. Yeah. Um I agree. <laughs> yeah. If you had a choice to go to a concert, you got the best seat in the house, you and your wife on a nice Palm Desert evening, who are you going to see? Dead or alive, doesn't matter, anybody. Yeah, I'm Pearl Jam. But first, Pearl Jam. Pearl Jam's always aligned with me. I mean, I grew up in that kind of era when it first broke and... Uh, Man, just the, and it's so true, the power of music, it can just take you places. And I just found their music always, especially the slower kind of ballad type stuff that they did, just was so powerful and always took me places. So uh, I would do that. And I, you know, just, I literally, I've only been to a few of their concerts, but I would love to go see them somewhere really unique and different in the world as part of the experience of travel. So that would be You know where you got to go? The Gorge. Mm, I've. The Gorge. I've heard of the Gorge, and Red Rocks is another one I want to go see a concert yeah. at Red Rocks. 
the gorge i went there it's unbelievable so cool carved into the side of the mountain you got the river behind you it's phenomenal i could only imagine what pearl jam would sound like there i'm in let's book it let's do it all right if you get you you know you talked about clean eating and you do a good job but if we do get the munchies what what bag of chips are we getting now we know you're in the states so there's no ketchup option for you not not that you would take it but you know no no ketchup no all dressed I yeah, know. Yeah, no all dress. No right? all dress is a problem, to be honest. Ketchup, yeah. I can do with. Yeah. Um, yeah, I'm not a big chip guy necessarily, but it's totally, to me, it's about mm-hmm. the salt. So it's got to go, go plain. Like if I'm into chips, it's because we're sweating and I need the salt. I need the plain. Just just, just good, simple chip. Let's go. Somewhere, uh, <laughs> Rich Chambers is smiling at you. Yeah. He said he I ate. love Rich. He's yeah. one of my favorites. It's the yeah. only kind he'll eat, he said. Okay, so I only get one kind. Really? Yes. Plain. Like it doesn't matter what brand, they're just, they're just plain salted. salted. Plain. No, no, no other flavors. The only <laughs> kind he will eat is plain. Yeah. Who do you think's the greatest basketball player of all time? Oh, I know. Eh? This is, I mean, I just certainly, I mean, I don't care. <laughs> and I don't get Perfect. involved in those debates. Yeah, yeah. I really nope. don't. Like I'm just yeah. like it's such a time waster, and I don't really have time to waste necessarily. But uh, well, you're, your you are 64. Again. You are 64 minutes in with us, so I know. You know. I know. <laughs> no, no, but I don't mean it in that context. I, know, I'm I just kidding, mean I'm it kidding. the other day. Like, <laughs> yeah. well, you know, if you want to talk about why someone's good, let's get into that and what's expertise and why they're an expert and different things. I mean, I grew up with Jordan, so obviously Jordan, yep. I appreciate that. But I don't think I grew up with Jordan at a time when I truly understood what he was doing because I was like high school to college with Jordan. Whereas now with LeBron, for that example, like I've been in the skill acquisition domain and this expertise analysis. So, man, I think I kind of align a lot more with just appreciating it from that perspective and just going, wow, this is what true expertise is. Mm-hmm. Like, it's incredible, to be mm-hmm. honest, uh, you know, that longevity and that success. Two more questions, and I'm going to flip this one just a little bit towards you and what you're all about. Is there a coach that you've had the chance to work with, or a handful that you've you've got in the car after, or you've seen as a as a you know speak or something, and you've gone, wow, like that was next level. And I know you've had the opportunity and still do to meet so many new people, and you don't want to leave anybody out. But was there a podcast episode or a coach that really, um, other than some of the ones that you've mentioned as mentors before, that that stuck out to you? So, uh, you you answer it like there's just so many and i'll mm-hmm. give you your answer by the way when anyone asks you what your favorite podcast is you say i haven't done it yet mm. because again at the end of the day if it's truly about a growth mindset it's like first of all i don't want to give them the satisfaction of saying hey listen i did my best podcast so don't listen anymore right and then right, secondly right. it's like oh i can always do better and i'm sure you know you're the same with this podcast thing isn't it you kind of yep. go back and you go it's kind of like coaching a game Oh, I could have done that. I could ask this. I could have like gone this direction. It's it's such a yep. fun process for that. So, um, to, to, I mean, to answer your question, I mean, definitely like I go back to the uh, Joe Razzos of the world and those people. Like John Zdraha was a high school coach in Waterloo. Um, Bill Hooks, uh, you know, these early kind of mentors I had about how to be a man and how to be a coach and how to be a father and different things like that. They've had such an influence on me. And mm-hmm. then I mentioned Larry Shy, like someone like that, that I've had a chance to have on the podcast, but had a chance to get to know through his different coaching stops as well. And just see how he does it and how, you know, 
he was just able to be able to do it with with such integrity and approach it in those ways. But um, in terms of pure cachet, obviously, like having Matt Painter, having Jeff Van Gundy, having Etor Messina, like different guys like that on the podcast, those are the ones where you kind of go, okay, this is cool. You know, this is cool. Like, you know, I'm getting a I mean, I'd say some of my best podcasts have been the people you don't know as well. Like the Ryan, Ryan Richmond, assistant coach at Washington for our sorry with Washington Wizards. I mean, his podcast was tremendous. I left that podcast going, man, this guy gets it. And he shared stuff that was practical and valuable. So, you mm-hmm. know, it, it's underrated sometimes, but uh, definitely I've been so grateful to have all these experiences with so many people and so many coaches. Cool. Um, you know, from a couple, couple of youngish, well, one young coach, one sort of a uh, little uh, longer in the tooth. We do appreciate everything that you've provided for people in the game. And uh, it's so cool that you've been able to take your true passion and turn it into because, you know, whatever the saying is, like, find something you're passionate about. You won't work a day in your life. But I mean, I'm sure some days you're sitting there pinching yourself thinking, am I really doing this? and and making a living for my family it's so cool um and knowing that you still have so much time left but the question that we ask and then the show with is if you could do it all again you would what what a great question talk about that you'd be great at a party with me uh to just be able to <laughs> dive deep into that uh and if i were to do it differently i think i kind of already confessed that in a way that i would try to i would try and coach truer to my authentic personality rather than my competitive personality. And I'm not saying I, I wasn't myself, I was myself. Mm. But, you know, we kind of have this duality when we coach and that's the competition versus, you know, the humanity. And uh, I would, that's definitely, I would have done that. I would have spent more time. I would have gone to a therapist, to be honest, and kind mm-hmm. of dug deeper into why is this taking over when this should be? And uh, I would have been in better service to my players in the game if I had done that. You know, kudos to you. I don't think this easy for a lot of people to admit or reflect like that. So you obviously, uh, do you sleep much? <laughs> I feel like it's your brain operates. Coffee, right? Yeah. <laughs> you know what? And, and, and definitely like when I was doing both jobs, I I did not sleep much. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and I put a lot, you know, I put a lot of work into it and then. You know, we just redesigned our whole website um, and migrated a site from 2014 to a site that's 2021. So that was like a massive amount of work over the last mm-hmm. little while. But it goes in phases, you know, and, and the week the week is what it is. And there's certainly weeks where if I just get what needs to be done done, then I have, a, you know, less of a work week than what you would expect. But yeah. as you know, the way we're wired is we always want to do more. And that's all these new projects and all these new things keep coming up and these new opportunities. And even like something as simple as somebody texts me and like an assistant coach from a big time division one texts me and just says, Hey, listen, I think you're like one of the world experts in knowing about this stuff. Do you want, can you, do you have time to talk? Mm -hmm. And it's like, those conversations are so amazing. And yet, as you know, they take time. Mm -hmm. So it's those things that, uh, you know, you have to balance and you have to be a little bit more protective of your time. So I was always this way as a coach. As soon as I got home at the end of the day, I was not doing anything except for being with my family mm-hmm. and taking care of myself. So I arrive home at practice at 730 at night. I wanted to be clear of that. Now, the one exception was always recruiting, which, you know, we won't get into here. But, mm-hmm. you know, by and large, most of it was and it's the same philosophy here. Basically, after three thirty, four o'clock, family time. 
love I'm it. Family. I don't have a. I never had a choice um, when I met my wife because she's four eleven and grew up as a skier. So, like, <laughs> if I tried to explain to her what happened at the game or practice, she'd just stare back at me and utter disbelief and have no idea. So it just was a natural fit. But I love that reflection. Before we let you go, thank you so much for being with us. Any last kind of comments or um, if you want to leave your Instagram or Twitter handle or where people can reach out if, if they have questions or they don't know much about um, what you do provide, because you do have a great resource and, and there's some awesome stuff there. Well, thank you. I'm certainly here to share and not sell, but uh, basketballmergent.com, just you can go check it out there. The basketball podcast, all the episodes are there and they're on any any place that you listen to podcasts. And uh, probably Twitter's the best, at B-Ball Immersion. Uh, my DMs are open and people can DM anytime, but def- definitely I've just tried to authentically share the game and uh, to focus on you know player development from the coach development mindset. Like if we develop ourselves, we develop players better and uh, just been tremendous to be able to share with you and to be in service of the game so i thank you for the opportunity no worries we feel the same too you know basketball was provided corbin and i so much and just sitting down with people we talked about this and um selfishly being able to just chop it up and talk basketball and life and how people have learned and grow through the game is it's powerful and and we appreciate you being with us so continued success hoops journey coaching clinic will get you on the list and uh, we'll make sure you're before Morrison, not after. So you don't want to follow him up. And uh, everyone will know that uh, when we go to the social at Parkside Brewery that to uh, to ask deep questions or else uh, there you, go. you won't want to talk to them. Yeah. Well, depends how many beers, right? Yeah, you got That's it. Awesome. It's awesome. I'm honored. Thank you very much. No worries. Great episode. Please like and subscribe and we'll see everybody on the next episode.